this is deceleration deceleration.news we're talking about ecofascism this week with some incredible guests we're looking at the roots key concepts and how it manifests not just in the manifestos of the white nationalist killers but in our own organizations our communities in the environmental movement that regrettably is birthed many of these concepts so thank you for joining us we'll try to take good care of you titan was like most planets too many mounds not enough to go around and when we faced extinction i offered a solution genocide but random dispassionate fair to rich and poor alike they called me a madman. There you have the ultimate villain, Thanos, from in- Avengers Infinity War, musing on his solution to hunger and environmental strain. As you heard Dr. Strange there summarize it, uh, boil it down, genocide. The, the film platforms real-world arguments and anxieties about the state of our planet and the billions of creatures bound together upon it and these deeply woven networks of interdependency. Among Thanos' solution of mass murder has popped up. This is very similar to what you see in shooter manifestos in various parts of the world today as supernationalists and racists begin to absorb and express environmental concerns. We, we can expect more of this uh, as the climate crisis becomes ultimately unavoidable for even these hardcore political conservatives, trending fascists, super, you know, fascists and white nationalists into the mainstream now and and occupying the mainstream of the Republican Party. Among uh, popular, these are these are ideas popular, uh, regrettably, among environmentalists for many decades. And uh, and some of these complaints about overpopulation, you'll recognize uh, as ostensibly the, the root cause of our predicament. Or uh, people who may internalize, you know, out of an abundance of, of love or concern for the world, these uh, other ideas, such as uh, one that uh, they, they, this group that we're talking with today identify in, in their webzine and, and teaching resources, you know, this idea that humanity is, is a virus itself. Um, Deceleration recently published the work of this uh, collaborative, these academics using the, the Mar- Marvel's Thanos story to define and correct several key myths that uh, and 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 that to help that are helping to perpetrate uh, or perpetuate rather uh, these uh, eco fascist tropes and so we offer this material today this interview uh, with the generators of, of this teaching tool in the hopes that folks will search themselves and be prepared to educate others as well about the dangers of these arguments and their inevitable endpoints of expression. So I'll I'll just say quickly uh, who who we're talking with. This is the anti creep anti creep climate initiative, formed in 2021 by April Anson, Cassie Galantine, Shane Hall, Alex Minrinsky, and Bruno Serafin. Uh, April uh, Anson, a assistant professor of public humanities at San Diego State University, is with us. Uh, core faculty for the Institute for Ethics and Public Policy and affiliate faculty in American Indian Studies. Cassie Galantine is a doctoral candidate in English at the University of Oregon. Shane Hall is an assistant professor of environmental studies at Salisbury University. 
Alex Menrinsky is an associate professor of English and affiliate faculty in American studies at the University of Connecticut and the author of Wild Abandon, American Literature in the Identity Politics of Ecology. And lastly, Bruno Serafin is a doctoral candidate in sociocultural anthropology with a graduate minor in American Indian and Indigenous Studies at Cornell University. Deceleration is deeply grateful for their time, their work, and uh, thrilled to offer this conversation. Hold on. I ran across the Any Creep Climate Initiative originally on the Asley Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment. Uh, uh, I think the website or maybe one of the social channels and grabbed it immediately. I was like, I want to uh, republish this. Uh, the the graphics, uh, uh, the webzine itself looked amazing. You know, drilling down into the uh, the the I think it's like myths and, and misperceptions and uh, was just so well done. I knew I wanted to use it. And I was so happy that y'all were gracious enough to allow uh, deceleration to repurpose that or, or to, to, to pro promote it through our, you know, structures and channels and, and what have you. Um, and I know that there's a play on with the Anna Creep Climate Initiative, as well as this, um, the Against, Against the Creep um against the eco-fascist creep. There was another publication, right, that that this is kind of riffing off of. I wonder if someone can just describe first uh, for listeners what the nature of this effort, I mean, it's bigger than the webzine, I think, um, uh, though that's large in, it, in itself and the te associated teaching materials, but maybe describe that and then maybe we can get into the origin story of this effort as well and how you each came into it uh, individually. But does someone want to grab that? Um, thank you for having us. We're really honored to be here um, together. And this is, I think, the first um, conversation that we've had since the, the launch of, since the week of the launch of the project. So yeah. it's nice to be all together. But we, you know, we're, we really were concerned with the ways that um, when ecofascism gets attention today, it's unfortunately in these um, spectacular instances of spectacular violence that are assigned to the right. And I think you know, probably more or less correctly assigned to the right. Um, but many of the arguments that they're rehearsing um, are longstanding arguments that are very familiar to, you know, so-called well-meaning environmentalists, often associated with the left. And so we really wanted to provide a resource for, um, for broadly speaking, public use that would um, provide resources for, you know, why these arguments are wrong, <laughs> um, but in a fun way, a usable way, a shareable way, one that was relatable um, and that helped um, offer a, a rubric or kind of a list of ways to identify the creep um, of this ecofascist sentiment from so-called right to left. So really across the political spectrum. Um, and that creep comes from, it's a, both a play on, you know, the the idea that ecofascists are creeps, of course, but also um, Alexander Reed Ross is against the fascist creep, the ways that mm -hmm. rhetoric, you know, isn't just creeping from right to center, it's moving also through leftist spaces. Um, mm -hmm. And so the project was born out of that, that desire for a resource like that. Yeah, I, I just in my in my own work in my own life, I know I I I kind of like reflect back on it from time to time, and this is one of those moments where it's like, well, where did I first learn that word? How did I learn this concept? Oh, I I, I missed, you know, I did things wrong for a long time in these other areas, and I know that like I was reporting on environmental racism uh, for a long time before I understood 
like very, very clearly what it was, or I knew, or I'd ever even heard somebody use those words, right? Um, and and I think this is sort of the same where um, echo fascism first popped up for for me uh, probably around the time of the El Paso shooting, you know, and that's not very long ago. Um, and coming to understand how it was used, how it was being understood then, and seeing, I think for us, the first thing we wrote about, uh, I believe, on deceleration uh, using using the term. Uh, was in response where we were observing a vigil uh, in San Antonio, and uh, and we were like, okay, uh, mental health, okay, check, uh, guns, check, age restrictions, you know, this sort, of, all that. And it took, I think, it was the fifth speaker till someone said white supremacy, and that's kind of what we were tuned to listen for, and we heard that. And then this this is a whole other channel of that because the the environmentalists here. I'd been in kind of like in in some level of argument with for a long time for those who advance kind of populationist understandings uh, and narratives of the climate crisis uh, and and rejecting that, explaining my reasoning around you know institutional racism and 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 and, and colonialism and all that. Um, so this is a new. This is still kind of I think new and evolving. But I like what I appreciate what you said, April, in that these are arguments that are being rehearsed. Uh, I wonder if, if someone can maybe pick up on that, that this is as, you know, as folks who come out of language arts and rhetoric, what does it mean to rehearse a new uh, a language like this or uh, just, you know, justifications that may be too specific, but. Um, Alex, do you want to speak to that? I feel like your current book projects prepares you for. Yeah, I, I think this is kind of where my head is a lot. Um, I guess I, I'm really, um, and uh, you know, this is a conversation, right? As you said, Greg, ecofascism as as a term is still hotly debated. You know, and and you know, I, I think all of us here have an agreement on what we kind of mean by it when we say it. But yeah. um, but you know, among us, we still kind of are working through it in different ways. And and kind of the way I really think about it is, I mean, I'm thinking about it. You know, why the word fascism? You know, why not like eco xenophobia or eco nativism or anything like that? What like what makes fascism a useful word? And so I think about just kind of studies of fascism more broadly and, and what we can learn from them. Um, and what really strikes me about those studies is that one thing that comes up a lot is that fascism is really hard to pin down ideologically. Mm -hmm. um, it's really inconsistent. Um, there are several kind of conventional features, but beyond, it's sort of like a we know it when we see it kind of thing, but it's really hard to kind of pin it down to like a to an ideological core. Um, but it is sort of something that, that, that most uh, observers and scholars and activists sort of agree. It's kind of um, the way I, I've been kind of thinking of it is, is less as an ideology and more as an effect, right? Um, it's it's yeah. it's something that that happens when sort of like existing um, kind of cultural elements, you know, for lack of a better word, or narrative elements particular to a given culture, sort of recombine in different ways in response to, you know, in the case of fascism broadly, normally severe economic dislocation caused by. Uh, global capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, and the same thing could be said for ecofascism with kind of an environmental twist to it. Um, so, um, you, you know, April had, had said a little bit about how, you know, this idea of a, a fascist or an ecofascist creep, you know, these ideas creeping from right to left. But, but I think um, April and I, I think, I think both think a little more capaciously about it and less even in terms of right or left necessarily, as in terms of kind of uh, common cultural constructs that are sort of coming together 
uh, in certain ways in response to catastrophes. So in the United States, for example, you have a history of white supremacy that's a long history that can't really be boiled down to what we today in the contemporary moment call right and left. Mm -hmm. And you also have a kind of narrative of like pristine wilderness nature that has a long history that you can't boil down to right or left. And when you combine those two things and kind of say, you know, the people of this nation and kind of its natural spaces are being threatened um, in combination, you know, the effects that sort of combination has tends to be to target um, people of color, um, indigenous peoples, peoples who have for a variety of reasons over the course of US history uh, been excluded and obviously not just excluded, you know, uh, been the subjects of genocide, sterilization, uh, what have you. Um, it's, uh, you know, sorry, I, I feel like I'm kind of far afield from your original question. You'd asked about kind of language. I mean, so uh, the way I kind of think about it is it's, it's not even so much a matter of right or left. It's not, uh, although there are kind of key components of the radical right that are trying to kind of make their messaging more palatable for the left. The fact of the matter is it's only palatable to the left because there are kind of pre-existing cultural dispositions that let the messaging be palatable. Certain mm -hmm. ways of talking about nature, certain ways of talking about national belonging, borders, uh, wilderness, um, race, absolutely. And gender too, you know, uh, you know, a big kind of thing in like eco-fascist manifestos like the El Paso shooters or the Buffalo shooters is all about kind of like this idea of natural biological masculine strength, you know? Mm -hmm. So you have all of these kind of um, social, uh, uh, not just social norms, but narratives about social belonging mm -hmm. all over the place, not necessarily confined to right or left, mm -hmm. kind of mobilized, right? Put together, recombined and mobilized by kind of self-conscious actors on the far right, but also maybe unintentionally by people at the, on the left and center. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, I'm flashing in a thousand different directions as you describe that. I think, you know, the whole, the whole, uh, you know, the kind of meme culture of Keck and Kekistan and, and all that chaos and chaos magic and everything, it all like funnels through channels where they, you know, may have no uh, grounded uh, idea of where things are going or the accelerationists, right? That we just want to speed this and have this thing. Uh, and maybe it's for the lulls on the one side, and that's a lot of the energy that comes out of it. But there's there are definitely architects as well, right? And who have a very clear idea of where they want it uh, to all of this to arrive. So I wonder if there's defining ecofascism, which we kind of were doing here, if, if we have a solid idea of, of how we want to define it in terms of this conversation, in terms of your work, and also maybe describe a little bit of how, just just for everybody here, maybe introduce yourself when you come come on the, the mic, uh, because there's so many uh, here, uh, and this will be just a, an audio uh, story, um, but if you could describe the origin story and, and coming to a shared understanding just amongst yourselves, I think is important. Yeah, um, this is April Anson, and I um, I, I think uh, what Alex just said is so important actually to understanding the project and our definition of, of ecofascism. Um, what we came to through much um, discussion, and I think um, still some dissent among us, but our kind of um, consensus definition was that ecofascism 
is environmentalism that advocates or accepts violence, one. Okay, and then important. Two, yeah, very important. Um, and then secondly, and kind of equally importantly, it reinforces existing systems of power and inequality. So, um, yeah. and I think that those two distinctions are, are um, equally important, but the that definition is really in counter distinction to how ecofascism, especially scholarship on ecofascism, has largely understood it as a mm. mostly a state phenomenon where the state takes ultimate control over individual interests. Um, they, you know, most scholarship cites Nazi Germany and and the influence of like German romanticism on Nazi Germany um, mm -hmm. as the kind of origin point. And so, what when Alex is talking about the attention to literary studies or the narrative tropes. I think, you know, today's climate, um, climate fascism, for lack of a better, uh, more nuanced way to describe that, um, really challenges the traditional or scholarly understanding of ecofascism, because they're so clearly with these screeds, um, Christchurch, El Paso, and Buffalo, right? They are clearly, and social science researchers tell us this, that the, the far-right um, texts are really uh, intentionally creating a echo chamber. And they're, they're really intentional about um, creating this kind of self-referential intellectualism. Mm -hmm. um, but there, when you read something like the, even the first paragraph of the El Paso murderers text, right? Is so clearly a Western frontier romance. Like you couldn't understand what he's saying without the lens of the literary. Because, mm -hmm. and you know, we can even think about the ways that it's a speculative project, right? It's it's a coming threat. It's always about to happen. So it is a work of speculative fiction, just kind of broadly defined. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the nuances of the sentence level um, work of these text, you really can't understand them without fiction. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and when we pay attention to fiction, we see that it's like, this is obviously much bigger than just a state phenomenon. It's much mm -hmm. bigger than just a right phenomenon. And it's like way bigger than um, the ways that most of, you know, up until very recently, or even really recently, the people that are labeled eco-fascists, whether, whether self-described or derogatorily termed, are in really complicated relationships to the state. Mm -hmm. So, you know, focus on this, the story that focuses on Nazi Germany and not to discount the scholars whose work is impeccable in this area. Um, I, we're, I think we argue that that's just, it's a, that's a very narrow understanding. And when we, we broaden it to attend to the kind of narrative tropes that creep across the political spectrum, we can understand contemporary, um, non-manifestos like these mass murders in a continuum with, you know, um, so-called population scientists today, mm -hmm. which, yeah. Well, yeah, let me, let me just kind of uh, jump off, step off of that. And, and, and maybe I know Shane, you had talked about kind of like, uh, you had a story about kind of like how, how you came into this project uh, uh, that I, I know we wanted to get back to, but I'm also thinking that for a lot of folks who are listening, uh, our folks, you know, there's, you know, I, I, I watch our analytics or whatever, you know, one in five are in our, we're bioregionally based, right? So like half of our, or most of our original reporting is going to be like dedicated to a place uh, and the people in a place and our relationships there. Um, but the majority of it, there are folks from all over and there's folks from academia and I see them out there and there's folks from other places, but, but probably that are familiar with environmental narratives, environmental movements, NGOs, you know, um, and I'm wondering if we can kind of 
touch on uh you talked about uh some of these uh the history of western fiction and romance and, and uh, writing and that kind of thing um just so people know what we're talking about when we say this is a kind of a continuum what kind of thinkers and writers are are we talking about that when we if we talk about the roots of environmental uh eco fascism well sure i think i mean i think for all of us um this this lineage is really important for us as scholars and educators um but it's oddly like for the webzine we we start with avengers endgame so yeah. the, the canonical text the master narrative is the story of Marvel superheroes yeah. fighting Thanos, who is a emblematic and maybe the apogee of an eco-fascist. Um, and that's really where this project started, mm -hmm. um, was a sort of tongue-in-cheek engagement with this ridiculous character who's made Marvel Studios billions of dollars, um, I guess. Um, and then, you know, in some ways that lineage is, is really important. That lineage goes back to, to thinkers and organizations, um, you know, the Sierra Club's uh, attempted sort of takeover by anti-immigration uh, and green, so-called green nativists, um, Numbers USA, those organizations from a literary perspective, um, you can go back to some of our, our, you know, a lot of environmentalists closest held heroes of Teddy Roosevelt, Madison Grant, um, even Henry David Thoreau and John Muir uh, in, in respects. Um, so that's really important. And if you take classes with us, you'll often learn about those figures. Um, but the webzine was this mm -hmm. attempt at uh, engaging with popular culture that was reaching in just uncountable number of people and circulating really broadly. And so, you know, as much as um, that literature really matters and is read in uptake, it sort of gets it's the way it spreads around, the way those ideas get repurposed, repackaged for a good villain, a villain who has a sympathetic side, because we do recognize, everybody recognizes that there are these massive environmental crises. Um, but how we respond to the crises is really the most important thing. And I think my own sort of pathway into this work is that I started researching with the assumption that, you know, our response to climate change, our humanities response to climate change as individuals, as collectives, as nations, as armies, might be far worse than the actual changes to the climate itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do we respond to that? And I think all of us in different ways have come to this, as April called it, um, climate eco-fascism or climate fascism as the fascist response to climate change, like the fascist mm -hmm. response to globalization in the 20th century is going to be worse than the heat itself. It is, it is pouring gasoline on the fire for so many of us. Um, and in particular, the populations that Alex talked about, people of color, um, displaced peoples, uh, those who are already marginalized and um, uh, oppressed in different ways across uh, the United States and, and the rest of the world. So, um, so this is the idea of accepting. This is one of the definitions you're working with, the willingness to accept violence as an answer to the current uh, challenges, right? I'll um, I I just want to throw this out here because yeah. it's something I always think about. Come on, this is Alex. My... Alex yeah. Minerski. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. This is I'm I'm Alex Minerski. Um, uh, something that I can never get out of my head that I read once was there's a there's another um literary scholar and cultural critic, uh, Sarah Jaquette Ray, who wrote about an experience she had um giving a lecture at a university, and afterwards she had several students email her 
um, so anxious about um, the climate crisis that they mm -hmm. said they would be willing to submit to a green dictator if they would solve the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm going to turn it back to Shane because I, I think he had more to say about, um, you know, why we did this, you know, what was or in who it's for, you know, who we wrote the, the, the scene for. But um, the point being, you know, we have students um, coming in regardless of mm -hmm. whatever political affiliation they might or might not have coming to the classroom. Um, you know, climate change denial is not popular um, among Gen Z, mm -hmm. right or left. Um, they're all coming into our classrooms really terrified, I think rightfully so. Um, but as Shane said, right, it's, it's really how we respond. And there really is kind of this evidence of, of kind of mounting panic um, <laughs> that, uh, that, that leads to statements like that, you know, willingness to submit to a green dictator. Um, and mm -hmm. it, of course, I mean, that's, that's the, as I was saying earlier, right, that's the exact sort of conditions that, that um, enabled a kind of a, a popular rise of fascism in Europe in the 30s was was a um you know it wasn't just a fringe movement although the fringe movement gets it started you know it speaks to the middle class you know because the middle class is freaked out about something or, or other i can jump back in if if nobody else wants to this is shane again um so i think that you know the anxieties that we were facing um we really i mean that that quote that Alex mentioned there of, of students being willing to take on a, a green dictator is a, you know, sort of a, um, a dramatic but, but telling example um, of what we're trying to respond to with this project. Um, and, and as a broader like sort of challenge, we're, we're all faced with how do we respond to, how do we take bad ideas seriously? Um, how do you engage with the ideas? the the tropes as april said are the narratives the faulty logic the meme culture for the lulls and the end of the world um how do you do that and the again our sort of our medium became this webzine of, of treating it um as something that is uh easily dis uh, disseminated um is is very pithy um very bright and shiny compared to our academic work which is very dull and on microsoft word <laughs> um and the the way that we thought was best to do this was to equip people especially students with very short ways of recognizing everyday eco-fascist myths the ways that fascism permeates our culture from all these different wellsprings all these different tributaries um and to be able to see it and and say what it is and then have um strategies and tactics to refute rebut and and keep it keep it out of our our environmentalism this project fundamentally was written for people who have a concern with environmental problems and social problems and yet nevertheless sort of find that even when they know something like you know let's build really strong militarized borders to stop climate migrants from swarming the nation they're like well that sounds inherently wrong but oftentimes when I'd ask my students about why they'd say like, well, you know, I can't, you know, like there are too many people and they are going to take all of our resources. So I don't want to be mean about it, but dot, 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 and that dot, dot, dot is very telling. It means that we don't have a counter narrative and we don't have a way of understanding the fault in the logic of borders or the logic of biologizing our social problems. So that's why we 
that's sort of why and how we did this and why we hope it's useful for anybody who is concerned with environmental issues. Can we run through an exercise like that? I mean, can you throw out one of these? I, I know there's 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 several, right? There's several of these myths and and, and counter arguments or corrections and 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 I, and I know this doesn't maybe fit into it, but I'm like Elon Musk. You know, I don't know if any, if anybody tracks him on Twitter. You're like watching him these days as revelations of more and more of his kids kids are coming out. He's saying underpopulation. We're headed for a population crash, and this is the real threat. I mean, I think um, clearly uh, it's not right. Number one, and and he occupies. Uh, you're trying to recolonizing the Rio Grande uh, Valley down here on the border, and it's like. Um, uh, is he just talking about white people that are headed for a crash? Is this where does this? Can you just take maybe one or, or two of the the myths that you treat in 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 this webzine and and you know what it is and 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 correct it so people understand what this is about? I um I'll, I'm gonna tee I'm gonna tee Alex up here because I think one of the um you know the most identifiable and but also still pernicious i think is the is the population control debate right and even with that musk quote um, you see how pop population is this dog whistle that can function either way, right? It can function, yeah. but it's always dog whistling white genocide. So right. here he's like, okay, so you know we're going to recolonize the Rio Grande. Well, first of all, colonists never left, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. the settlers mm -hmm. are still there. No, that's that's my language. So I'm saying my language is he's down here doing this. So that's what in, in native uh, and indigenous folks there. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, they. I, he might have spoken to this. He's been accused publicly many times of uh, being a, basically a colonizer down there in terms of the the uh, gentrification that's going on following the development of the spaceport and, and all this. But I guess what I'm pointing to is he's got this footprint, right, where he's, he's definitely having this impact on a particular population. There's a long uh, history of human uh, settlement as well as migration through that area that's now blocked at a militarized border. Uh, and he's saying population, you know, uh, the problem isn't overpopulation, it's this, this coming crash. And I think, so the crash is his, that's, that's his quote. And, and all I can, when, all, when I read that, I just think there is an infinite labor supply that's continually moving through the Americas at this choke point, right, that we're, that we're sitting on and he's sitting on. Um, so, uh, but yeah, he's using it. I mean, thank you for calling it that. I mean, as a dog whistle uh, for a very particular political purpose, and maybe we could, it's easy to jump off of, of, that, of that point as much as any. Yeah, and one one point that um, I heard actually a, a couple of weeks after the, the zine had, had been released that I thought, oh man, I can't believe we did, it didn't make it into the zine because it was so good. And I'm going to use this to tee you up, Alex, um, which is that it was Jade Sasser, uh, Professor Jade Sasser, geographer, I believe. And she made this point, like even if, even if we were to grant population um, control aimed at the most consumptive populations, right, which it never is, Mm -hmm. um, the United States is a perfect example of why population control doesn't work. It's been the U.S. has been in population decline the last 40 years and consumption has grown. So population control writ large doesn't work, whether it is dog whistling white genocide or a kind of passive um, mm -hmm. eco fascism. And I think and I think that's but it is the most pernicious, especially for those of us who are circulating in environmental studies. And um, and Alex can speak more to that, I think. I'll also, I noticed Bruno unmuted too, so I'd, I'd, I'd actually be very happy to pass the torch to him, but but what I'll just say, um, in, in terms of, you know, um, that myth itself, um, it's not just that 
time and again, a variety of population scientists have kind of disproven this. Um, you know, I'm actually kind of surprised he hasn't come up yet. One of the big figures in the zine and in this conversation in general is Garrett Hardin and his tragedy of the commons. You know, he's kind of like the um, the uh, the founding father of, of contemporary population panic, although he's also working in a much older tradition. Um, but the point I wanted to make about that in terms of the myth itself is that typically, you know, um, population control, population declension, whatever you want to call it, you know, the politics of population is, is never value neutral. And, and it normally ends up, you know, it, it, these population arguments typically rely on the logic of the nation state and borders to begin with. Um, so typically when people say we need to control the population, in the United States, for example, what they're saying is we want fewer brown people coming mm -hmm. in, right? It's always, Absolutely. you know, April, you know, said it perfectly, right? If you want a nice kind of empirical kind of refutation of the population uh, of the population argument, the population has declined in some ways as, as consumption has, has risen, you know, like, and um, but the problem with the population argument is that it is often accompanied by other discourses and that's where, it becomes an, an, you know, an eco-fascist argument, right? It's, it's fulfilling both of those kind of prongs that April mentioned earlier in our, in our definition. Um, but, um, but yeah, as I said, you know, in terms of the myth itself, that's what I'll say about it. But yeah, I, I'd love to give Cassie or Bruno um, a chance um, to, to speak to this as well in terms of you know, both the myth and like a rebuttal that we kind mm -hmm. of give. Yeah, so um, this is Cassie Galantine um, speaking. And our zine kind of covers six of the most common um, eco-fascist myths that we have noticed or tracked in popular discourse. Um, they're addressed both um, in the context of the Marvel uh, universe, but also more broadly um, and how we see them playing out. Um, I think one thing that really got my brain uh, locked in on this project was a lot of the discourse we saw that came out of um, you know, the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, which of course is ongoing, but um, so some examples of what we tackle are the myths that we've already talked a little bit about that overpopulation is an environmental crisis, um, which, you know, we then go to demonstrate through um, a variety of, uh, you know, reaching towards um, sources by uh, other scholars that that in fact is not <laughs> the root cause of our climate crisis. Um, the, another would be that humans are naturally tragically selfish. Um, and so with myths like that, we look a lot to, um, you know, many, many, many years of uh, the dedicated work and activism of indigenous scholars and indigenous um, organizers to sort of counter that concept. Um, the idea that humans are a virus, which obviously um, became popular uh, in our uh, regular day-to-day -day discourse with the pandemic. Um, and uh, city people are the problem is another one. So this idea that like the city center is, you know, the real source of this pollution when in reality, um, having things sort of centrally located can reduce um, you know, consumption or reduce uh, emissions, things like that. Um, 
we obviously talk about that borders myth. So if we increase the security of our borders, we can curb um, the use of resources and protect resources. Uh, we see that with examples with, I think I wrote a paper a while back on um, Donald Trump tweeted, I think it was in 2016 about how, uh, you know, Im immigrants coming across the Southwest border were, you know, leaving all this trash behind and threatening the environment and threatening the lives of border patrol, but no mention of the larger, much more structural environmental damage that's done by border patrol vehicles and border patrol infrastructure. Um, and then um, the the myth that the final myth that we tackle is that environmental and social collapse are desirable, right? That we want to speed towards this in order to um, see what might be on the other side. Um, so those are some of the myths that we tackle. Um, I don't know if Bruno, if you want to chime in on on anything else. I kind of just did a very brief overview of the six. Well, let's uh, take yeah, let's take one of those. Um, mm -hmm. I'm reminded, uh, and I don't know if this comes in, but I'm reminded, I mean, I just think in general, so just to pull out like the Marvel conversation, just pop culture and where people are at, I just feel like that most people are, I mean, my experience is most people are really, are really cool, are really good, are really fun, you know, and, and, and are interesting and, um, and I think want to do good things in life, you know, want to be connected and want to help others, you know, generally, I think that's the impulse. And I think there is a, there is an illness, right? A cultural illness that has followed kind of like, and I think in some of the indigenous studies, you'll see and 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 prepping for some classes, you know, Mati Soul has got piles and piles of books looking and kind of in the field where y'all are at, uh, looking at, and, and I've been reading some kind of first firsthand account of, uh, you know, original peoples in, in the Americas, Native Americans responding to the experience of, of white folks, right? And saying, oh, there's, there's an, oftentimes you see reference to an illness or a sickness or this hunger that can't be satisfied or what this devouring and, 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 and there's a counter charge of cannibalism that always followed with, with the Spanish and others, right? Um, but I think there is, there is, there is an illness in the culture and there's, and, and it's, it's almost like, even for myself, I mean, I I, uh, I know that there's things I'm not understanding or perceiving correctly because I've I've come up in a certain place in a certain time in a certain with certain stories, uh, and it's a challenge, right, to kind of uh, recover from that uh, and to find a, a really good way to be with with other folks. Um, but what I love about this project is that it it makes access easy. If someone comes to the point where Thanos is arguing for you know destroying you know, humanity or half of humanity or whatever. And, and, and I've been that young person watching a Marvel movie or, or reading the comics or whatever. And it makes sense, you know, because you do have sympathies, right? For, for others in distress, for creation in distress, for nature and other species. Uh, but but we, a new thought is hard to come by, you know? And, and I think sometimes it just takes uh, someone, it, it's like turns a light on. And that's why I appreciate, I, you know, I don't consider myself an academic, you know, uh, I went back and I did my master's in the middle of all of, you know, this, not, it was pre-COVID, um, but I didn't go that direction. And I have a really hard time reading, honestly, like a couple of pages and some academic work and I'm done. You know, that's what I can manage because it is, can be so dense, but a new, I do recognize the power of a new idea uh, to any, any of us. Right. And so, and a lot of times for young folks who are reached a point where they don't know, they're not seeing, um, 
uh, well, what is the answer to this, you know, this, where we're at when the anxieties that we're all experiencing. And so maybe we can't take, uh, let's take, you know, people are bad, right? And so uh, what, what are the answers that, that y'all brought forward uh, in, in this web scene? Sure. Hi, this is Bruno. Um, hey, Bruno. I'll answer it, I guess, in kind of a roundabout way. Um, but I mean, I think, well, okay, I guess I'll just start directly. I, you know, I don't actually have the zine in front of me, uh, but I want to say, you know, in terms of the way that we structured these mini essays, which mm -hmm. again, that mini essays are ways um, that one could hypothetically respond in everyday life if you hear someone repeat one yeah. of these kind of eco-fascist myths or talking points, right? Um, and so I think with the humans are tragically, naturally selfish, um, Something that comes out of the zine is that in, in sort of multiple sections um, in different ways is that um, a question that the zine asks is like, why do um, eco-fascist talking points go down so easy? You know, mm -hmm. why do they seem so self-evident? Um, and why is it when you hear something like humans are naturally tragically selfish or humans are a virus or overpopulation is an environmental crisis, mm -hmm. um, you know, what is it about um, our social lives and our political uh, systems and economic institutions and the history in this country, specifically the U.S. Um, and our kind of refusal to like um, face that history that that makes these things seem self-evident? Um, so really, the first thing I think structurally in these mini essays, which again are very short, is kind of historicizing and denaturalizing the argument itself. So the idea that humans are naturally naturally tragically selfish um has a specific kind of intellectual lineage and it was articulated by thinkers um i think specifically that one we point to garrett hardin maybe someone who's looking at the zine can um mm -hmm. right agree that's the or, first one mm -hmm. right the tragedy so of the commons yeah 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 tragedy of the tragedy of the commons right like this is something that was written um by someone who was a xenophobic white nationalist um and, you know, it was an argument put out by him in this century. Um, and similarly, if like we look at the overpopulation discourse, it's like, actually, there was this person, Malthus, who introduced this idea in this particular political context. Mm -hmm. um, so just just it worked for them at the idea. time. It served a purpose. Right. Is what you're describing. It served the, 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 the uh, industry or who, you know, whoever was bringing this forward, right? In, in Malthus' time, it would be, you know, that we've got a problem with these Irish. What are we going to say about that, right? Right. And, and connected to the specific kind of imperial projects of Britain at that time, both in Ireland and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I can't, maybe I can tag someone else. I can't remember. I, I don't want to kind of get it wrong and just riff on it. What else we did say about in response to humans or tragically naturally selfish these these are stories that served a purpose at a time and and for that reason were carried forward to continue like in this case the the, the colonial project right or or, or or what else they justified um uh horrendous acts right uh, yeah and they didn't they didn't serve good purposes they yeah. served very nefarious purposes yeah, and they, yet they still live with us because they're, again, harbored, and I think this is something that April said early on this call, uh, that they're harbored by well-meaning folks who, uh, you know, it, it, it allows them to be resuscitated. It's almost like they, 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 they don't die, right, until we just really just nail it uh, right in, in the heart. So um, do, do we want to do that as an exercise to read through kind of the response to humans are naturally, tragically selfish, and maybe even like 
when I said humans are bad, I was like, yeah, this actually would have fit. Humans are a virus is the very next one. So is that something we can read through real quick? I actually think humans are a virus is a good one. Let's do that. Yeah, we haven't talked about that yet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Humans are a virus. I'll read the myth. Does somebody want to be, kind of bring the, the reality? So it's structured as, you know, here's the claim and, and the myth, humans are a virus, is humans are like a virus or a cancer on the earth. We've probably all heard that. Um, and catastrophes like climate change, COVID-19, are nature's way of defending itself. The reality that we present in response to that myth, um, we say when we assign and scare quotes cancerous behavior to all humans, we limit our vision to a recent economic system of resource exploitation. This ignores most of human history where the majority of human beings have not caused global environmental destruction and climate collapse. The humans are a cancer metaphor was popularized in the mid 20th century by James Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis in work funded by Royal Dutch Shell. Lovelock's metaphor mimics fossil fuel companies' climate change disinformation campaigns, covering up the causes, shoring up profits, and continuing to harm those least responsible. The metaphor suggests climate change is nature's revenge, offering a simple cause and effect logic that suggests those who suffer deserve it. As such, the humans as cancer metaphor avoids explicit racism while it perpetuates harm by naturalizing the vastly unequal impacts of climate change. When we universalize humans as cancerous or a disease, we pro propagate a nihilism that prevents us from joining the movements fighting for more just and regenerative environmental futures. Cool, yeah. And I think Bruno, you were early on, you, you said you do work with the group uh, peoples in, in, as you said, up in Northern, what we today, we, you know, understand as Northern California. And um, Alex, you've mentioned also that a lot of the, this work is, the, your collective work here is informed by understanding indigenous knowledge systems as well and teachings about uh, some of these issues. So is that an area that's drawn in? I can see that being drawn here, uh, some direct lines to, to this response. It's complicated. Um, I do think on the one hand, there's sometimes an impulse to over romanticize, you know, uh, peoples like the Karuk as if they have certain answers to, you know, all of our environmental problems or something like that. Um, mm. But on the other hand, there's, you know, uh, I think settler colonialism and European imperialism globally kind of functions by presenting itself as itself the vanguard of human thought and knowledge. Um, and by um, erasing or uh, destroying other knowledge systems um, and other economic and systems of politics and governance and law, um, any kind of alternate alternative systems that don't kind of um, support uh, the kind of uh, racial order and, um, you know, extant forms of wealth accumulation. Um, so it's, it is important to look um, beyond um, this, this sort of self-referential self philosophizing that can happen where, um, you know, Euro and Euro-American forms of economy are uh, proclaimed to be inevitable and the only way. Um, mm -hmm. And so there are, there's, you know, amazing folks to this day all over the world and, you know, definitely here in Karuk country who are um, living examples of fighting for uh to show some of those alternatives um so that's definitely not something we explore in any way really in any depth in the zine itself but mm -hmm. um it's important for us all to be to be thinking about 
Yeah, and you do uh, reference land back, right? Tactics and strategies as response. Uh, I think it's the third point there. And I, I would say like indigenous scholars today, in, in when we even talk about describe climate change, global warming as a crisis, right? That for a lot of folks, and now there's so much attention given to climate anxieties and mental health and all this, there's, you know what, there's a lot of people who have lived through and not just, you know, those who identify as Native American, but have lived through genocides who have lived through kind of end of the world Armageddon is all this other kind of stuff and have a lot to teach about that. So um, I appreciate that there are these references here as well. Um, and what about, I mean, the, the tactics and strategies, you want people to be able to access this, I think, it, and, and it's easy to get into, it's easy to read, um, but to be able to walk away and really to be able to check the growth or the extension of, of some of these concepts. So what what what's the, uh, again, kind of going back to the ideal audience and response uh, for this uh, project? Um, yeah, Cass. As a whole, like most of our tactics are really focused on um, breaking out of that neoliberal mode of thinking about climate catastrophe that many of these myths depend on. So like this idea that humans are inherently selfish or whatever, that is a very sort of individualist approach, right? Like when in reality, the problem, the vast majority of the problem stems from, you know, corporations, the military industrial complex, which is a massive polluter. Um, and so I think we tried to focus a lot of our tactics and strategies to that scale. I mean, we, we definitely advocate for thinking on multiple scales in terms of like geography, but um, I think getting away from this idea that um, that is presented both on the left and the right and the center that, you know, it comes down to our individual actions and that's, that's what's gonna be the solution. Like mm -hmm. that is what we wanna sort of start to stray away from. And I think in straying away from that, we will automatically be sort of countering a lot of these myths simply because they depend so much on this individualist way of thinking. So much of what I, and we have, we learn from activists on the ground that are, that remind us that this hero narrative is so damaging to, to movements, right? To this idea whether that I'm responsible for the salvation of the planet or I'm responsible for the destruction of the planet. Both of those like are, are paralyzing and they exonerate the systems that we know are have mm -hmm. most of the responsibility. So um, I think also thinking through the lens of the literary helps. I don't know if this is just for me personally, but it helps me understand my own responses and compulsions um, as less uh, a, a measure of my own worth and value and efficacy and morality and more as like a, a, you know, structures of programming that I am constantly having to engage in. And so um, I think in some ways that that was all triggered when we um, saw the Marvel Universe, like let Thanos off the hook completely and let his, his, um, his like very shallow argument stand. And so um, as I, I want to make sure that we get into the best part of the zine before, before we sign off. And I wonder if Bruno can tell us a little bit about the comic, which was basically us trying to imagine, like, what if the characters were equipped with just a small amount of environmental science and environmental research to meet Thanos' um, shallow arguments and show them for what they, what they are? Hey, this is Bruno. Sorry. Um, 
Yeah, so this webzine has three parts. The first part is a comic that's kind of a riff and remix and sort of artistic reinterpretation of some of the characters and stuff from Avengers Endgame and Avengers Infinity War, which are the two kind of big, big movies from the Marvel Cinematic Universe that made billions and billions of dollars. Avengers Endgame specifically is like one of the highest grossing films of all time. That's part one. Um, part two is a series of six mini essays uh, with the common things you hear about ecofascism and responses. And then section three is um, responses and um, tactics, discussion questions, and further readings. Um, and so in the way that the six mini essays are sort of like, here's how you might respond if you hear ecofascism stuff in your daily life. Uh, the first part, the webcomic, is a little bit of like, um, in a way, it's kind of a media literacy little primer um, in the that uses humor and um, artwork to have kind of a fun intro to the way that ecofascism creeps into not only our everyday conversations, but also our extremely high profile media and narratives that we as kind of pop culture consumers of the West and globally are kind of taking in. Um, and so I think myself and, and others kind of came to this funny, troubling realization that Avengers Infinity War is sort of a film that's sympathetic to ecofascism. And the, that, so that I don't want to back, I want to back up from that a little bit and to say the villain of the film is mm -hmm. kind of an ecofascist. He's not presented as a good guy. His ideology is not presented uh, as something laudable in any way, shape or form. Um, but he's given a large platform to um, offer this Malthusian interpretation of the world and um, he's presented as a sympathetic character who means well. Um, mm -hmm. So even though he's the villain and ultimately he gets killed by all these superheroes, um, the film itself is kind of sympathetic to him and kind of sympathetic to his perspective. So it would actually be fairly easy to walk away from watching those films thinking, wow, you know, I, I never really, I'm, I'm glad Thanos put it that way. Or, or you know, people mm -hmm. think maybe he made some good points. Mm -hmm. um, and when we encounter genocidal maniacs and mass murderers like Thanos in real life, I don't think I don't actually necessarily advocate um, trying to meet them in the so-called marketplace of whatever was it called marketplace of ideas. Or mm -hmm. sometimes if people are advocating mass murder and genocide, it's like they're pretty much beyond discourse. They just need to be stopped. Um, and mm -hmm. so I don't. I think it's kind of good that the Avengers didn't sort of try to win him over, but actually just were like, we need to stop this guy. Um, mm -hmm. That being said, the films don't really offer, again, they offer only this closed loop of, of Western sort of settler colonial eco-fascist thought that sort of marries, uh, you know, various forms of elite power with a very narrow closed ideas of nature. Um, so it's, it's very uh, insular and alternative thoughts aren't really offered. And so, yeah, the comic is sort of a fun idea or it's like, what if as all the superheroes were fighting Thanos and like kicking him in the face and stuff like that, they were also, also. offering these like re reasoned, <laughs> well-researched uh, arguments uh -huh. about, you know, about why Thanos is um, kind of whole perspective about, oh, I'm going to kill half the universe and that's going to somehow mm -hmm. save everyone's life. Why that just doesn't make sense on so, mm -hmm. so, so many levels. Mm -hmm. um, when they never really have that conversation in the films, and, um, you know, and right in the beginning, Thor, I think we have Thor saying something like, he knows his idea doesn't make any sense. We should just kill him properly. Um, and then, you know, they end up having the conversation. And at the end, Iron Man says, well, 
so much for defeating Thanos in the marketplace of ideas and then right. snaps his fingers and you know the film is, so the comic ends the same way the film does um mm-hmm. but we just wanted to offer that as just kind of like a fun little culture hacking way to introduce these ideas and show how prevalent they are um mm-hmm. one other thing i want to say is just bringing it back to fascism generally it mm-hmm. was said earlier that fascism functions by creating popular appeal and middle classes buy, can buy into fascist ideologies when they feel threatened. I think that's completely accurate and the historical record shows that, um, mm-hmm. especially thinking about European fascism in the mid 20th century. It's also so important to recognize that fascism succeeds when the elite classes and the most powerful institutions also see a benefit to them by partnering with the fascists. So, you know, in case mm-hmm. We know about the Catholic Church, you know, industrialists and capitalists. Um, and so to see, you know, uh, Disney essentially making a little, having a little eco-fascist creep, little, just a little bit of creepage, not, not too yeah. much, but a little, um, is something that we thought needed to be drawn attention to. And especially mm-hmm. in this moment right now, this post-2020 moment where globally we had Black Lives Matter and protests that were some of the biggest racial justice, biggest protests uh, in the history of the country happening. And now we have this kind of uh, rightward revanchism that's happening nationally. Um, we, we have to recognize that, you know, again, these powerful institutions um, do feel threatened mm-hmm. by social movements and by the power of people. And that is a moment where they may see it to be in their interest to partner with more fascistic movements and elements. So that's also part of the context of and part of the intervention that the zine is trying to make, I think, in, in sort of a, but also in sort of a fun way, maybe. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I think well, well achieved. And, and so it's also intended to be kind of a check on the, the, the film itself or, you know, that, that, you know, don't, let's not leave this hanging. Let's have, have a direct uh, response. Um, yeah, I see um, Shane. Can I jump in just uh, quickly to say, I, um, you know, Bruno was saying like, you know, when you encounter a, a murderous uh, eco-fascist, um, maybe don't defeat them in the marketplace of ideas. Or, you know, when the elite align themselves with um, with fascist movements to gain uh, benefit, really, like in a way that, like he's a hundred percent right. Uh, but it's also the webzine, the ideas, the comic, the essays, the tactics are not geared at you know, everyday people running into murderous eco-fascists in your everyday life. There is that that threat and those foot soldiers of white supremacy who, who commit mass violence um, as their own hero narrative within a fascist movement. Um, and in the case of Buffalo and Christchurch and El Paso, but we really, the a, a function of this is to find when your environmentalist um, board of a local nonprofit or when your friends in the dormitory are talking about like, oh, well, we're really just totally screwed by climate change. And wouldn't it be great if a more muscular government came in and decided stuff for us since we can't seem to decide anything through the democratic process? It's these moments where fascism is creeping and the soil is being made ready to use more naturalist metaphors that Mm -hmm. fascists would love. Uh, for these sorts of political pro- projects to grow. And so that's really where, you know, it's this this webzine doesn't defeat Thanos or his elk, but it does help us, um, like you put it earlier, Greg, uh, stop the, the growth or extension of these ideas into further space or give people a way to check them within themselves. Because again, they're 
Marvel made a sympathetic supervillain because he is sympathetic and people can find those middle-class under threat can feel sympathy. It's not that if you've ever thought that, oh, people seem really selfish, that you are an eco-fascist. That's not what we're saying through this project. But if you are saying that and you are falling back on that individualist defeatism, uh, you are making things easier for fascism uh, and fascists to take power. And that's what we need to start to understand and and have the the intellectual mindfulness and ability to counter that um, and then politically to stop it, like Bruno was saying. Yeah, that's a great, I, I appreciate that. I, and I feel like we're, we're kind of in a moment. I wonder if we can just do a kind of around the room um, thoughts on, you know, one, one question I have is what kind of feedback uh, y'all have received individually? What kind of response from others who have consulted this and found it useful or not helpful or been in, you know, caused consternation or whatever? Um, and maybe kind of wrap up with just kind of reflection on on where what what's what's come from this process and and where you hope to go and 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 we're uh, I'll come back around to Shane and maybe start with Cassie and and work on my own little Zoom clock here if that's okay. So for the feedback, I guess um, at this point, I think it's been mostly positive, um, uh, and we've gotten a lot of people circulating it. Um, I think if we were to like shift our audience, that may not be the case. Um, mm -hmm. But I think overall, it's been um, we've gotten a lot of encouragement from folks um, in terms of like reflections. I think something that I've been thinking about throughout this conversation and something I wanted to add here at the end. Um, I think what this scene can do and what I plan to use it for myself is, you know, when we, the eco-fascist discourse we're encountering in our daily lives isn't always going to be on, like we've, like Shane has talking to, like on the scale of a mass murderer or on the scale of Thanos who wants to wipe out half the population. It comes, it creeps in um, through things like, um, for example, I remember like rereading Desert Solitaire and getting to a part where mm. Edward Abbey is just straight up advocating for compulsory birth control for indigenous women and like stepping back and thinking, wow, I never like thought about that the first time around. And no one, mm. when it was taught to me, it was taught as this like, amazing tr environmental treatise and um and i remember talking to people and being like hey like what the heck and they're like oh well you know who knows what he meant by it like oh it's edward abbey like and i think something like this zine might have been really helpful in a situation like that where um we can expand our definition of what we think of as violent like a lot of people wouldn't think of that sadly as we mm -hmm. as we see with the um you know very rapid attack on um the rights of people who menstruate um which of course has been happening forever to um in particular women of color and, and poor women mm -hmm. um that this violence doesn't have to be mass slaughter the violence can be forced hysterectomies at uh immigration detention centers it can be which is spectacular violence in my <laughs> definition of what that would be but like it can be um you know a newspaper article saying that you know COVID is good because dolphins are 
happy or whatever the discourse mm -hmm. may be or something like that that we've seen previously <laughs> in mm -hmm. uh, news coverage so i think it, it helps us to sort of expand that definition of violence um, in a similar way to sort of what rob nixon does um with his term slow violence but you know a little bit more specific to eco-fascism um so yeah i think that has sort of been one of the, the takeaways for me is just this um i'm glad to have the vocabulary now i think to sort of respond to those uh texts that are glorified or those um those texts that are not quite as extreme or as spectacular as a marvel movie alex do you want to um I'll say something uh, reflective quickly. Um, I, I think it's something that's come up in conversations with other people before. I just think it's worth repeating anytime we get the opportunity to talk about this project. And it's not really so much about the project itself beyond the fact that that what I'm about to say is essentially, you know, kind of proving the point of the project. Um, and it's that, you know, we're, we're all here. We came together to work on this thing. And, um, you know, we're all academics, activists too, but academics in the humanities and social sciences and so much of the work we do is isolated and individual and independent. And we, um, you know, we work in an institutional structure that um, if not um, discourages, um, doesn't make easy collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, and if nothing else, you know, it's really nice to have produced something for a wider audience um, that is already, um, uh, that has already been really well received and people find it useful and, and helpful and inspiring um, and, and know that we did that together, not individually. Um, and if nothing else, um, something that can be said about the project beyond its content is the fact that it's a testament to the fact that the kind of individual hero narrative of social change is garbage, um, because this was a very worthwhile project and we, not one of us would have been able to do it individually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for, for bringing that. Um, Bruno, are you, are, are you, can you come in on the shared a early version of the zine with a, uh, a friend and he said uh this is going to be really helpful for talking to my dad and my family about certain things and I was just like I was like that's great um and I think we all can think about I mean I hear people in my family repeat things that are similar to some of these eco-fascist myths humans are like a cancer or mm -hmm. you know something these various things that they get said does mm -hmm. it mean that those people are eco-fascist no mm -hmm. not at mm -hmm. all that's the that's what we're talking about when we're talking mm -hmm. about this this creep and that's mm -hmm. why it's like it's when it's just creeping that's when we have this opportunity to have these conversations and to start to introduce some new language or just to to maybe phrase things in a different way for ourselves and for the people we care about um so we can all just start thinking a little bit differently and stem it as it's just creeping um and so for me just hearing that i was like yeah that's that's the point and i if that if he's going to be courageous enough to you know push back on his dad in a political conversation it's like well maybe i maybe i can do that with my dad too you know next time he mentions something mm -hmm. about you know <laughs> overpopulation or something like that uh mm -hmm. just to just change it up a bit so yeah that's that's what i'm looking forward to awesome yeah i absolutely i and, and i just say again i, I think it's a it's a beautiful, it's a beautifully packaged, it's, it's humorous. I, I just enjoyed it, you know, um, and it's, it's easy to, it's easy to work through, um, uh, that it's not, you know, a labor to understand, you know, like this deep, a deep analysis. It's just very, very clear. Um, here's what's said, here's where to go with it. And, uh, and I think it's going to really, like I said, just turning on an idea. Sometimes it doesn't have to be, um, it, the more accessible it is and, and where you're going with this is, is accessibility. 
um, then you can you can you can interrupt somebody and, and, and benefit somebody in their own life trajectory, their intellectual life, their their life with real relationships and and all the rest. So um, yeah, um, April and, and Shane. Uh, I should just say one name and not two. <laughs> Sorry about that. Like, right. well, do I have a choice? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, we, I, I think the reception has has been covered. Lots and lots of people um, we've heard from ha are already, have already added it to their syllabi for summer courses and awesome. for next year. And I also have circulated it to family that um, was just recently visiting and spouting some of this stuff um and and to be you know uh to be like full transparency it also helps me catch myself when when those spots start to creep back in in various forms um and i think you know all told just to reiterate what what alex said is that it's such a testament to how much better thinking happens in community like the project mm. is so much better because of all five of yeah. us thinking simultaneously about these things. Um, and one takeaway that I personally have gotten from it is, um, is Alex's point of thinking of not of ecofascism as a stable ideology, which is presents all sorts of intellectual and, and genealogical problems, frankly, but eco thinking of things as ecofascist. And just mm. to what Bruno said, you know, that allows us to parse what is a person's identity, even yeah. my own identity, yeah. and these thoughts that creep in, right? And that helps us be more compassionate and, um, you know, community forward. And um, and I think ultimately, because it's, you know, it's uh, um, something that I, I, a person that I listened to a lot, Adrienne Marie Brown said recently was, I want us to live. <laughs> like, mm. you know, this is an abundant, gorgeous, remarkable like shockingly beautiful planet Absolutely. and we have shockingly beautiful politics mm -hmm. in a complete like a, a myriad of um of of models mm -hmm. and so why <laughs> why would we shortcut our potential and our pasts like these pasts mm -hmm. that we know um have presented viable political alternatives on this continent and globally um, because, you know, we should all want us to live, <laughs> not to be too pithy about it, but, and a huge amount of gratitude is deserved, um, by Melody Keenan, who's a graduate, recent graduate of San Diego State University, um, a graphic designer, and she is just incredible. She took this project from our intellectual pursuits to the amazing, um, thing that you have before you. So, uh, yes, Melanie Keenan, San Diego State University. Something that I keep returning to in this project, through this project, after this project is, again, how do we take like bad ideas seriously? And by that, I mean, like, how do you take something that is widely spread, easily soundbited, um, shareable, memeable, um, and seductive and treat that seriously, you know, as a scholar, it's easy, right? Like I can write a 35 page paper about it that then nobody reads. Um, and so how do you treat that seriously in, in sort of, um, on its own turf in its own ways. And so in the mix of, of, of the internet, um, I think this webzine, you know, it isn't, it isn't memes. It's, it is still longer than something that's longer. 280 characters. Um, but it is a sort of a, our attempt at, um, combating the sort of the seductive, 
logics of eco-fascist thinking, which is everywhere and bounces around and does in its own internal logic make sense and, and have a kind of seductive quality to it. Once you actually stop and critically examine something from a historical record, a philosophical record, scientific record, or like any of these sorts of angles, it all falls apart. It's all a house of cards. Garrett Hardin doesn't know what he's talking about when he says that there are lifeboat nations are lifeboats. It's a terrible metaphor, but if you take the metaphor on its own terms, it's really seductive. Um, mm-hmm. That's a deep cut. Look at our further reading for the lifeboat ethics thing. Uh, and so, you know, this is something I think we need to do is just learn that media literacy, media literacy that Bruno talked about, how to stop and critically think and think about the counter scenario, the counterfactual, the actual facts. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know. And, and win the competition of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I threw, I had to, I had to, I had to drop that in, in the chat because there, there, there are, um, I just, you know, I keep going back to, you know, and I know echo fascism, uh, isn't exclusive to like white culture or like, or Western white or whatever it is, but it, it's largely right. It grows out of these, everything I've heard people, the reference points and the, and the, and the, you know, the writers and the philosophy I've heard come out of that stream, right. It seems to be, and it seems to be, that's where it's living and that's where it's being amplified the most. Um, and so I do looking forward and I haven't, and, and probably because I'm not as well read in that area, but I am thinking a lot about like, you know what? And, and, and also like talking with some of my, my friends who, you know, they are organizers of color and just be like, there is a struggle still for like, for white folks in the movement. Like it, it, it is, is this an okay place for, for me to be sometimes? And sometimes it's not, sometimes it is, but it's gotta be a place for, for all of us, if we're going to get through this rather than, you know, uh, start parceling people out into our own rooms, you know, and, and chambers and what have you. So it's a challenge to all of us, uh, really. Um, but the attraction, the allure, uh, uh, I think is, is mainly in, in these same places where the accelerationists are living and, and the Nazis and, and everyone else. So um, y'all just enjoyed the conversation so much. And I know we've got a hand up and I'm not trying to shut it down, but I do, uh, this has been wonderful. And and if anybody wants to drop a final thought, um, bring it in. I, I saw April's hand up. I just, I just want to add, this is April, is just that, um, you know, just a plug basically that what we, we know from the zine and from our historical and, and, um, and contemporary scholarship is that, you know, white, whiteness is also a fiction. White supremacy does not need white people. It's a set of extractive property mm-hmm. relations. That's a little bit redundant, right? So, when we think about this um, debunking these myths with the realities and equipping us with these kind of critical reading practices that Shane was so eloquently speaking to, it's about recognizing the performance of those relations and halting them. And mm-hmm. so that's that is a project that all of us can um, can engage in, though differently, right? Um, depending on our subject positions. And so just as a, and that's, and it's a a plug, it's a point that um, has been made by a number of recent scholars, but most, I think most compellingly by Jill Lowndes and Dan Fosing in their recent book. Um, Just thinking about these, you know, uh, alt-right movements like the Proud Boys being led by people of color, what that means for our ideas of whiteness. And I think um, thinking of it as a fiction, recognizing it as a fiction that has material effects is helps us do that. And the zine Mm -hmm. is in that spirit. Excellent. All right. Well, Cassie, Alex, Bruno, Shane, April, uh, with a lot of gratitude, a lot of uh, joy, uh, really appreciate this, 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 uh, this effort. And I look forward to seeing it uh, 
flourish and and spread and seeing where where y'all take your work uh so please stay in touch thank you greg all right bye bye thank you bye thank you you can find us at our website deceleration deceleration news if this has been helpful it was a joy to produce um stop by our patreon deceleration uh what is that patreon.com backslash deceleration and uh you know leave a dollar or two and uh, sign up our newsletter over at our website have a great day thank you and also a lot of thanks to um george garza jr for the theme musics gorgeous